Those who take the time to observe the flowers, or indeed any living thing up close, will be rewarded in any habitat, but especially so in the tropical rainforest. Seen from the inside, it is a series of small miracles. A quote from Dr. Adrian Forsyth, co-author of Tropical Nature, Life and Death in the Rainforests of Central and South America. My name is Lucy Kleiner, and this is The Nature Dilemma, a podcast series by Osa Conservation dedicated to, inspired by, and created in the last wild places on Earth. These stories help us understand the dilemma between humanity and the planet humanity depends on. We'll tap into the knowledge of experts around the world and take you to some of the most pristine and vulnerable wildernesses on Earth. I'm reporting from the Osa Conservation Biological Station, surrounded by Costa Rica's ancient rainforests. Join me as I look for answers from the top conservationists, scientists, and nature nerds around the world. Today, I'm having a discussion with world-renowned conservationist, Dr. Adrian Forsyth, the man who helped save massive chunks of the Amazon from disappearing forever. But before we jump in, let me give you a little background on Dr. Forsyth. His life's work in tropical rainforests has propelled our understanding of these landscapes forward, but his story is very different from other modern-day scientists. Adrian excelled in school, receiving his PhD from Harvard in ecology and evolutionary biology when he was just 26. A year later, he joined university faculty, and talk of tenure arose before he was even 30, an offer to which he promptly said, no thank you, and instead dedicated his work to protecting the complex landscapes he had fallen in love with. He has since founded and led conservation nonprofits across the Americas, including Osa Conservation, the nonprofit I work for, so I'm introducing you to my boss's boss's boss, recorded virtually from across the Americas. I'll let Adrian introduce himself. I'm a kind of a crossover between uh, being a natural historian, uh, being a scientist, a refugee from academia into conservation and, uh, you know, kind of operating in all those spheres. I find myself wanting to go back to my original, uh, you know, occupation, which was doing natural history, um, because I think that's kind of ultimately what motivates you to do this is that you're interested in nature. And, um, you know, that's why you go down this path. But at some point, uh, you know, you can get taken away from that. You can spend a lot of your time in front of a computer, in front of, uh, you know, an audience uh, in Zoom meetings and be away from the thing that drew you into, you know, biology and conservation in the, in the first place. So you've got to find the balance and, I feel I'm a bit out of balance. I want to get back into nature more. And I think that's, you know, coronavirus restricting your travel and all that. It makes you appreciate what a privilege it is to actually go outside and and travel and see the world. Absolutely. I think everyone across the world is feeling that, especially what you mentioned about maybe being in front of a computer screen on a Zoom meeting a bit more frequently than we'd like. Um, Can you talk to me a little bit about that passion for nature? You said that that's kind of what you need to get into this field. Where does that stem from for you? Well, you know, a lot of people who are interested in nature attribute it to uh, early childhood experience, and I'm no different from that. I grew up in northern Quebec where I literally had uh, boreal forest 
out the back door and my parents were in that era where, you know, they were too busy working and surviving to worry about what their kids were doing. So uh, we were free to just go off into the, into the forest with a hatchet and uh, do what we wanted. And uh, it's how people evolved, you know, for 99.7 of our existence of a species uh, you know, we were hunter, forager, gatherers in nature. And so all children are born naturalists. They uh, have been selected and designed to be able to tell what will kill them, what's good to eat, what's poisonous, where they can hide. And, uh, you know, if you actually watch small children, you can see that they're innately interested in nature. They hold stuff up to you before they can even uh, form words and go, ah, and they want you to give them feedback on it, drop it, put it in your mouth, that's okay. They put something in their mouth all the time. They're, they're little scientists out there experimenting with what's good in nature and what they have to be aware of. And so I think if you're lucky enough to have that as a child, you're highly likely to be interested in nature as an adult because it's just kind of exploring what you were meant to explore. And I think I've heard that from you before, that all children are born naturalists in your eyes what what makes you a naturalist you know i think anyone who goes out in nature and you know kind of observes it and gets to know it asks why it is the way it is is a naturalist you know so it can take a lot of different forms it can be someone who's a bird watcher and decides they're going to go ocd on birds and know everything there is to about identifying birds it can be you know it can be a person who appreciates landscapes so it can take many forms but it's really about developing both an emotional as well as an intellectual relationship of nature. It's a lot different from going down a zip line, and you can do that anywhere. If you do it over a canyon filled with rainforest, it's still just being an adrenaline junkie. So to me, it's a lot about the interest and observation and thought as being part of the experience. If you've ever sat on a log by yourself in a forest and just listened, and ask yourself what you were hearing and why, and why is some of it beautiful and why is some of it, you know, incomprehensible. You're a naturalist. We're going to talk about this more, but I know from what I've read of yours, you've spent a lot of time sitting on that log, listening, looking, and observing kind of around the world. But before we dive into the work you've done, can you kind of walk me through the career path you took to get to where you are and maybe start off with your earliest memory as a naturalist. Yeah, so my parents had a big garden because it was kind of an economic necessity. Uh, where we lived, it was hard to get, you know, fresh vegetables or fruits. It was 500 miles north of Montreal, so kind of a crummy uh, place in terms of like what you could actually buy and uh, it was expensive. So. Uh, everyone we knew, including us, had a big garden. And my first memory of, you know, doing something for money was my mother would pay me a penny if I collected 100 potato beetles because they were ravaging the potato plants. And I would be able to turn that, I would give that penny to a brother or sister and they would buy me candy. We're born with uh, the ability to distinguish sugar concentrations as an infant. It has an analgesic effect on pain it makes them uh, smile involuntarily so we're like chimpanzees our nearest relative we're wired to detect sweetness and fruit so if you have an experience whether it's picking berries or collecting beetles to get candy 
that's a very positive experience of natural history. You have to, you know, recognize a potato beetle and know how to find them and hunt them down and you will be rewarded with sugar. When I think of the earliest thing where I was really excited, it would be to collect potato beetles for my mother. <laughs> well, that's good to kind of hear an established scientist justify my sweet tooth and tell me that it's okay and it's actually science. You can't help it. It's fundamental to your whole evolution is that early childhood ability to find things that are sweet. That's fantastic. Um, apparently that sweetness kind of stuck because now you are a professional naturalist. Walk me through the path. What did you do after you were done collecting? Well, food? you know, I had, you know, a reasonably normal uh, childhood, I would say, where I was interested in all the things that other kids are interested in, playing hockey and doing hating school and all that kind of stuff. But when I was a teenager uh, and I moved to the tropics of Ontario, my parents kind of like pushed me out the door every summer and said, get a job, you know. So I started off with jobs that I hated. The first job you can get as a kid is delivering newspapers or raking lawns. They're not very rewarding. When I was 15, I got a real paying job uh, where I got a salaried wage, but it was pumping gas and cleaning the toilets in a roadside gas station. I don't know what people do when they go into a gas station washroom, but it is disgusting. So I did that one summer. And then the next summer, I didn't want to do that. My mother got me a job at a local hospital autoclaving the glassware, which was full of the most disgusting stuff that they had taken out of people. They didn't use plastic back in those days. So it came in glass Petri dishes and jars and stuff. I had to make it clean. And the autoclave room was like 120 Fahrenheit and humid, humid, humid from all the steam. So I wasn't really happy with my summer employment. Uh, but when I was 17, my mother detecting that I was not happy with going back to the hospital, told me to write this professor at the local university who worked on fish because she knew I was a fanatic about snorkeling and everything to do with water. And I wrote him and I said, I'll work for you for free. And he happened to be a, a penny-pinching guy, and the word free was irresistible. So he offered me to come and work for him, and I started off working in his lab, just feeding his fish, which he was experimenting with. And then that summer, he took me up to biological station where I ran boats and gillnetted fish for him. And to me, it was such a contrast to be paid to be out on a Canadian lake in a boat or a canoe uh, working with fish going snorkeling, uh, you know, as opposed to working in a gas station or, you know, in a hospital autoclave room that I thought, wow, if you can actually get paid and make a living doing this kind of stuff, who wouldn't want to do that? So that kind of really hooked me into the idea that biology could be a profession that would be a fun way to live as well as a way to make a living. Right. And I think that a lot of people have that same realization where they suddenly have a moment where they're like, oh, this is what I've been interested in my whole life, but I didn't know I could make a career out of this. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's that can happen for anyone, regardless of your early childhood. If you meet a professor or a teacher or whatever who gets you out of your box into having a great experience in nature, that can be enough to change you. Before that actually happened, I was preconditioned by another teacher in grade four. I was always 
the class dunce in my school. But in grade four, I had a teacher called Miss Burns who detected that I was interested in science and nature. And she let me grow plants and, uh, you know, use dye to plot their vascular system and have pet hamsters and all that kind of stuff. And I went from being the class idiot to head of the class. And I kind of stayed there because I realized that if you could explore what you're actually interested in, you could suck up all the stuff that you hated and just say it was a way to get to do what you want to do. So I think, you know, if you can find a mentor or a teacher who will kind of open up a new world for you, that will put you on the path. And it can happen in university, it can happen in grade school, it can happen anywhere. It's a huge revelation to realize, like, life isn't my my father worked for an aluminum company for, you know, his entire life, and he couldn't wait to retire. So he spent most of his adult life doing something he hated so that he could retire and do what he wanted. And then he got bone cancer and died. Uh, so, like, what's the point? Uh, so, you know, that's why I say if you kind of can discover the fact that we're living on this amazing planet and you have just one chance to enjoy it, that's a huge thing. And so I think I'm rambling on a little here, but it's something I feel like you either have someone help you do it and open a door for you, or you find it yourself. You read something and you say, I'm doing this. And let's explore that for your path, what you did, because you definitely escaped that that rat race. Um, and you actually, I think, have some interesting thoughts on kind of academia versus conservation how those two worlds fit together and kind of the path that you chose in your profession. So talk to me a little bit about how you decided what to do with your adult life and kind of where that took you. Well, you know, I kind of, when you're in a university, professors teach you as though they expect you to become another professor, right? So they take a very academic approach to teaching you. Like if you have to take organic chemistry, they make you study it as though you're going to become an organic chemist. So you learn all about technical reactions, uh, SN1 substitution or whatever, but they don't talk to you about why an apple smells ripe when it's ripe, like that that's aldehydes and ketones. So you, you don't learn anything about the organic chemistry of life experience. So you may be able to go into a lab after you take an organic chemistry uh, class uh, and manufacture something, but you don't know anything about the organic chemistry of life, the stuff that you experience with your your senses every day. And so I think it's important to realize that people who come into conservation have had this training which prepares them to be academic biologists, even in conservation biology, but it doesn't prepare them for the real world. And academia rewards professors for publication rates and grants gotten not for their impact on the real world or not for their ability to place students who are going to have an impact on the real world. So I went through the conventional academic thing where you learn to publish papers, do research as though you were going to become a you know, professor, which I did become uh, briefly for a while. Uh, but when you study something and you see it burning down every day and disappearing at some point you sort of say well what is the point of you know knowing more and more about something that's going to disappear from the planet and so a lot of people who are in conservation come to it indirectly they come to it out of being a biologist or conservation biologist and realizing that academia and universities are good intellectual training grounds but they won't help you get the job done of keeping the planet 
a great planet. I was doing uh, academic research on places that were being trashed uh, and eventually just sort of say, well, this is actually more important than this crappy paper that I'm writing that six people are going to be interested in and five of them are going to think they could have done a better job. So, so like, eventually you think academia is kind of a nice, harmless thing, but it's not a very helpful thing unless you actually turn it into action. And so what did you do to turn that into action? You- when they put me on the committee on committees, I decided that I would leave academia, that I, it was just taking me for, again further and further away from the real world and further and further away from nature. I could have easily gotten tenure, and I thought once you get tenure, you have golden handcuffs on you. It's very hard to give up lifetime employment. So I was young enough to just take a risk and said, you know what, I'm going to go and survive in the woods and try and make a living however I can, but I'm going to spend a lot of my time outside doing what I like to do. So I quit my job and just moved to Ontario, found some cheap land and built a place off the grid and was able to like survive by writing for part of the year and then just being outside the rest of the year and doing research and just enjoying nature. How old were you when you were offered tenure? You know, I probably got into the academia too too early. Like I was just 26 when I had my PhD and I had a job as faculty when I was 27. And most of the people, a lot of the graduate students were older than me. And the faculty wanted to talk about mortgage rates and lawnmowers. And it was just too, too big a, a culture shock for me, I think. And so I quit academia when I was 30 and decided, like, now is the chance. I knew I could survive, uh, you know, even if I had to grub roots out of the ground. Go back to collecting potato beetles. Yeah, exactly. So I just made that leap of faith. And actually, some faculty offered to help pay for a psychiatrist because they thought that only a person who's like crazy and having, you know, severe mental issues would give up tenure. You know, my next segue from kind of like living as a as a writer and all that was like I went to do a writing assignment for Conservation International uh, on a, the first debt for nature swap that had just happened in Bolivia. And when I went there, I reconnected with a guy who I'd known from graduate school who was the president. We had a quick trip to Indonesia together, and he said, why don't you open a program for us in Indonesia? I said, like, Russ, I've been there for two weeks uh, just with you. And he said, you can do it. And so I I did it, and then I became an employee of a conservation organization and uh, kind of got sucked into the institutional way of doing conservation, working through a, a nonprofit. Well, your friend may have seen something in you that you might not have yet, but your uh, interest in the nonprofit sector has taken you very far. Like I mentioned earlier, you are the founder of both the Andes Amazon Fund and Oso Conservation. Can you talk to me briefly about both of those organizations, kind of what they mean to you and what they're doing right now? Yeah, so I think one of the things that you find in conservation is a huge range of sizes of organizations. There are organizations that are all volunteer and have very little process and bureaucracies, and there are great big organizations that are global and have staffs of thousands uh, and spend a lot of time with process and trying to keep all the parts coordinated and working together. And so uh, 
again, you can get very far from nature uh, by working for a conservation organization. And so I was in an organization uh, that was growing to be global uh, and spending a lot of time in meetings and in process and very little time in the field. And at a certain point, I realized most of the money that was coming into the organization was staying within the beltway and actually not hitting the field. And that when I would go in the field, I would meet park guards who hadn't been paid for months that didn't have any gas for their boat. You know, I would see a lack of resources there and a lack of understanding where decisions were made about what the conditions were actually like in the reality of the field. And I, and I kind of felt that 90% of the money should go into the field and 10% of it should go into the machine. And that uh, the most important thing was, can you go out in nature and see that a difference is being made with your conservation dollar? And so my goal really in starting a new organization, you know, get things more down to the field level and less down to the, you know, high level uh, process and policy stuff. Uh, so the first NGO I started really was something called Amazon Conservation Association, which was based in Peru. And that began as a project uh, to work on Brazil nut forests. And it kind of evolved into an organization where we just felt like this is something that actually has an unfilled niche to be on the ground in this part of the world. And the OSA conservation thing was really the same thing. I happened to buy land from a neighbor and we saw a couple local organizations fail. We were both at CI and we sort of say, we know that like starting an organization is horrible, but we feel like there's a need for a local organization. Why would we be so crazy? And I said to him, look, I'll talk to this guy, Gordon Moore, that I know. And if he'll get us started, we have to do it. And if he says no, well, we don't have to do it. But he said yes. Uh, so we had to start it. And again, it was just, it wasn't the desire to do this per se, but just if you love a place, you know that there has to be a local entity that looks after it. Uh, and I felt that in both of those places. Talk to me a little specifically about what you felt on the Osa Peninsula, because I, for one, embarrassingly enough, hadn't even heard of the Osa Peninsula before I got a job there. I had been working for a PhD up in northwestern Costa Rica in a region called Guanacaste, uh, and I had run into this, I think, the most amazing tropical ecologist to still be alive in, in the last century, Dan Jensen, and he was working on the first real national park in Costa Rica. So I got to know him a little. And after I graduated, he said, you've got to come to see Corcovado National Park when I'm there. Uh, I was just three years old. I went into Corcovado and it kind of blew my mind after working in Guanacaste where the trees are like short and spiny and nasty and the trees in Corcovado were immense and huge and you know the monkeys were dripping from the trees and you had the ocean there and giant bull sharks in the rivers and uh, just like fantastic place. And so, uh, you know, I kind of bonded with the Osa then, but I didn't really think about it that much until I kind of uh, bought some land there. And at the time, there was a lot of illegal logging, you know, hunting was rampant. There was a lot of gold mining going on. It was kind of a bit of a Wild West situation. It's the wildest part of Costa Rica because it got a road last of all of Costa Rica. 
And so it was kind of where people who were wanted for murder uh, would go to be a gold miner. So it just had a lot of value biologically, but a lot of threat. When the two NGOs that existed went out of business, that's kind of when I felt like, well, I don't really want to create an NGO, but this place needs one. And you talk about the beauty. Why was it so biologically important? Well, you know, it's a really wet area. You almost have a lot of trees that you only would see elsewhere in the Amazon. It's where you have like a concentration of diversity because wet forests are more diverse than than other forests. Then the fact that it's right smack up against the Pacific Ocean with Gulf of Dulce with this deep fjord-like bay with the biggest mangrove intact on the Central American Pacific Slope and this gigantic forest, which is incredibly rich in wildlife, you see that when you go there. You're just going to see more wildlife in the Osa compared to other tropical rainforests that you might visit. And if you've been to places, like if you've been to the central Amazon, after you've been to the Osa, you'll say, this is like a desert. You know, it's, the Osa is a very productive place uh, in terms of wildlife. And I think that that complexity, you can see that through what Osa Conservation, the actual organization you founded, does because Osa Conservation is involved with mangrove restoration, sea turtle protection, wildlife monitoring, they have their own marine program. It's a lot all happening in a very small organization in the middle of the jungle. Yeah, and I think when you're on the ground, uh, as opposed to being in a, a big city, you have to be holistic. That means you have to do a lot of different things. You can't just say we're only going to do policy. You can't just sort of say we're only an advocacy uh, group. You can't just say we're only doing research. You have to use every tool that works to make the landscape protected and sustainable. And so you have this microcosm of marine stuff and terrestrial stuff in their integration all in that one place. And so it makes it this place that calls out for a sort of diversified approach. You can't, you can't be working on marine stuff and turn a blind eye to mangroves because everything that happens in the mangroves affects the coastal fisheries. If you work in the mangroves, you can't go and ignore what's happening on the landscape because the mangroves are the result of all the land use that is happening up in the watershed. And if you follow the watershed, you're going to be up in the mountains. And when you're in the mountains, you're going to be saying, this is where things are going to have to go under rapid climate change. And so when you're on the ground, it takes you in a lot of different directions. And that's part of the fun of it. You don't just look at sea turtles. You look at the place where the sea turtles live, which is the people, the industry, the ecosystems, the ocean and the land. It all comes together. Dr. Forsyth. One of the things you've mentioned as we've talked about kind of your passion throughout your life is that at the end of the day, you were just trying to get back to nature, get back to nature. For ecologists, a lot of that time in nature looks like really intense field work. Yeah, I mean, I kind of think that if you don't get out onto the surface of the planet, it's very difficult to understand the planet. You don't even know what to study. So I think you... You can't really understand what's important or what's happening or what's changing or what, you know, is an opportunity for understanding unless you get out and poke and touch and smell and experience things. 
So tell me a little bit about your touching and smelling and experiencing of the world. Do you remember your first field season? I think the first time that I was actually in the field where I wasn't doing something routine uh, was my first trip to the Amazon with the same guy that I was working for, you know, took me to net fish for him in the Amazon. And after I did that trip, when I was flying home in a DC-3 prop plane, I flew by this amazing mountain range on the north coast of Columbia where rising out of the Caribbean through desert scrub was this 19,000-foot mountain range capped in snow. I'd never heard of it, but it was the Sierra Nevada of Santa Marta. And I said to my friend sitting beside me, like, what the hell is that? We've got to go there. And so we looked it up on a map and found it and went back there the next Christmas, just backpacking through that region and uh, kind of looking at the sort of change of everything from the coastline up to the snow line. And that was kind of, I think, my first self-initiated kind of field work where it was me deciding to do something, not a professor or some other person telling me what to do and why to do it, but just me seeing something amazing and saying, I've got to go and see and experience this thing. And, uh, and that, I think, really kind of set me on the path to, like, get out on the planet because it's full of amazing things and places. And that first field season was not even close to the end for you. What else did you go on to do in the field? You know, I did a lot of my my graduate work in Western Ecuador, which was getting completely trashed by oil palm at the time. And so I relocated to uh, Costa Rica because they were starting to invent uh, a national park system. I met Alvaro Ugaldi, who kind of was inventing the national park system. And it was an amazing place uh, to be and live and kind of feel like something was being born from the ground up. And then after that, I started to work uh, in Indonesia and I decided that I would concentrate my field work there in the western half of New Guinea. You know, I did that for a few years, but then I eventually realized like I'm focused on the neotropics and I kind of like burrowed back into the Amazon and burrowed back into Costa Rica. You know, I think I've probably been obsessively focused on the Amazon. It's not like it's a small, simple place, so it can absorb your whole life. Surely a large part of your understanding comes from the fact that you're spending a lot of time in very remote areas in these parts of the world. Tell me about some of the experiences you've had, perhaps while on expedition or while living in a field station? You know, one thing that's important is for you to uh, disconnect and drop a bit of your agenda. If you're always connected to the internet, you're checking your social media, you're checking your email or whatever, you're not paying attention to the place where you are. And what I found is when you drop your agenda and just go with what's there, you get exposed to things that you wouldn't imagine. Like once when I was at Los Amigos Biological Station in Peru, where I'm usually pretty busy, uh, this guy had heard about Dario Cruz, who's this amazing man, spent virtually all his life in the forest, making a living, wandering through the forest before there were GPSs or walkie-talkies or whatever. So he had a reputation as this amazing naturalist. And one day he was there working and he came into camp carrying a giant armadillo. And I said, how did you find that thing? They're really rare. And he said, I know what they sound like when they snore. So he, he had heard this armadillo snoring and had found it 
its burrow and pulled it out of its burrow and brought it back to camp where this woman radio collared it. But anyways, he saw that I was interested in how he found it. And he said, would you like to go for a walk with me tomorrow? And I had a busy day or whatever, but I just said, yeah, I'll go for a walk with you. And that walk with him was like transformative because I realized if you actually spend a lot of your time not doing anything, but just walking around the forest, especially with it, a guy like that, you will learn so much that you'll never find in a textbook, you'll never find in a, in a published paper, and it won't be on your checklist of things to do. Like he showed me how to recognize that when a tree has a certain angle of bend in it, just because it got hit by another tree or it grew towards a light gap, it creates this kind of angle at a certain height. And he said, whenever I see that, I know that a peccary will have rubbed its back against it. And so he saw one going down a trail and he said, I've never seen that before. Go and rub where that crook is. And I rubbed it, smelt my hand, it smelt exactly like the stink of a white lip peccary. And this guy had just noticed this. Uh, and he knew that he could tell if a white lip peccary had been in the area recently by just rubbing that tree. Because a peccary goes by, it was like irresistible. They have to scratch their back on that thing. What does a white lip peccary smell like? A white lip peccary smells like uh, you probably never did high school wrestling, uh, but if you did and you had to wrestle a guy who didn't wash his gym shirt for weeks and he put his armpit over your face, that was that's what a white lip peccary smells like. Oh, so, washed armpit uh, is quite disgusting. Oh. Um, but anyways, that's what those uh, little trees smell like. But anyways, I I think you know what I've learned is like take time to be unprogrammed and just go out and listen and watch. And as you know, I've often written about the value of just sitting on a log, often with your eyes closed, because you can't actually hear the forest unless you sit with your eyes closed. And if you're too busy, you won't do it. And therefore you will actually never know what a rainforest sounds like. What does a rainforest sound like? Well, you know, it's different at every time of day. You know, you, if you do it very often, you realize there's a cicada that sings it an hour before the sun hits the canopy. And you realize there's a different one that sings at dusk and there are different ones that sing at different times of days. And you'll realize that you hear a lot of things waking up uh, just before the, at the time between the birds going to sleep and the bats waking up. So there'll be a lot of insects flying around in that blue hour, etc. And you'll hear them. You'll hear big beetles going through the forest at that hour, and you won't hear them at any other hour. Uh, and their wings make a very distinctive noise. And so, but you won't hear that if you weren't just sitting there at dusk listening to the sounds of the forest. That, that's beautiful. And I'm lucky to have been able to hear a tiny, tiny sliver of a small rainforest and I look up to you a lot as somebody who has taken the time to listen to a lot of rainforests. I think one thing that's so special about the places that you've been, they're incredibly remote. Tell me about how you got there. Yeah. So, you know, I'm interested in places that are like they were 10,000 years ago when people were living without technology at really low densities. So this area that I work in, Peru, we still have uncontacted people who live without metal and contacted they fled from the rubber boom and they've been living like people lived 10,000 years ago with bows and arrows and spears uh, living off the land and being nomadic and uh, 
and moving with the seasons and uh, being on the beaches when they're turtle eggs and following the peccaries uh, and probably smelling the smell of those peccaries on the same things that Dario Cruz showed me how to detect a peccary with. And to me, if you don't have that experience of these uh, wilderness places, you're missing what the baseline is. You don't know how healthy the world is or how unhealthy it is unless you know what it could be and what it used to be. And so the world is always changing, but if you can get to those places that don't have roads and lots of people and lots of shotguns and most of the wildlife is, you know, just teetering on the edge of extinction, it gives you a better sense of what a healthy natural ecosystem is like. And to me, that's, that's not only important scientifically and from a conservation perspective, it's the thing that you can do today that your children or grandchildren may not be able to do that humans in the future will be like, man, what, why weren't you out there experiencing that when it was available? Why weren't you being in a forest where there were jaguars still in existence? You know, why didn't you go and watch monkeys when you could watch monkeys outside of a zoo? And so to me, these wild places are like a window in time that we still have available. And I can't understand why aren't people dying to do this, uh, you know, because it won't be available if we keep going where we're going. Right, of course. And a lot of your work is focused on that and kind of trying to mitigate that, that disappearance. Um, tell me, how do you think the, the path forward has changed? So look, things are happening at an ever-increasing pace. Uh, the importance of technology and human existence is like proportionally greater. And that is good and bad. It means we can transform things technologically at a fast rate, but it means we can also understand and protect them at a greater rate. The vocabulary that we had didn't exist a generation ago. So you can talk to a politician now at almost any level about sustainability or environmental impact, and they know what you're talking about. And a generation ago, they, there would have been a foreign language to them. So I think we have a new vocabulary. We have a new understanding of the limits of the planet. It's not infinite. This has largely come about through technological change being transmitted into cultural change. Like, I think astronauts being able to photograph our little blue planet floating in this vast sterile cold blackness the vacuum of space transformed a lot of people's view of what the planet is in its small fragile unique nature in the universe so i think a lot of the indicators environmentally are bad but it all depends on the time scale that you analyze things if you looked at social indicators a thousand years ago things were pretty bad right slavery was the norm women were a different species of a lower nature people of color were not human democracy as a concept didn't exist literacy was for the elite and now that's all kind of radically transformed if you look back a thousand years ago we didn't have the environmental problems that we have today we weren't doing fossil fuels plastics global warming was minimal. Agriculture was pathetic uh, and low impact. But if we look ahead, all the things that are bad now are capable of being transformed the same way that we've transformed social indicators. 
things will get a lot worse before they get better, but there's no indication that the way we have transformed human culture around social values can't apply to environmental values. We just have to keep at it. We're smart. We'll get there. Well, it's great to hear your positive outlook on the future. Um, If we kind of transition and look backwards, do you have any career regrets you can share with us, Dr. Forsyth? Well, yeah, I regret that I haven't gone to Africa, you know, and and I regret it even more because I was planning it before coronavirus. You know, in terms of a smaller thing, I regret that I haven't done a better job of keeping field notebooks. You know, it's one of the things that they talk to you about as a lab book, keep a lab book so you can look up your notes and see, you know, how long you actually boiled that solution or whatever. But I feel like if you go out in nature, one of the most valuable things that you can do for your own life, for your descendants' life, is to record what you're seeing and thinking and feeling. And it takes time, but if you develop that as a religious habit that you do every day, you'll find those observations uh, just increase in value to you personally and to a lot of other people. And I haven't done a good job of doing that. But when I have done it, and I've gone back and found an old field notebook from a trip I did someplace. I'm like amazed at what I was thinking at the time. And uh, it recalls things that I had forgotten that are treasures. So keep a field notebook, like do it every day. Don't write a, don't write a chapter, just write a few notes. Those things will just grow in value for you. What other advice do you have for a young Adrian or perhaps for a young ecologist that's just getting started today? You know, I think there's a lot of power in learning. Like, I think it's good to be a generalist and not get too pigeonholed, but I think it's good to learn a lot either about a particular group of organisms or a particular place. Like, go wide so you can get a comparative sense of things, but also go deep on something. So I think that people who learn a lot about birds or learn a a lot about orchids or learn a lot about mollusks or learn about mosses or whatever that gives them a different lens into the world because they're really deeply familiar with with that group. And wherever they go, that starts to speak to them. But don't just do that, because if you only know about mosses, you know, you won't notice the cool thing that these monkeys are doing right above your head. So you have to find the balance between becoming a generalist and knowing a lot about things, but very little about any one thing, and, and the other extreme of just knowing a lot about one thing and nothing about the big picture. But I would really recommend picking a group, whatever it is, and getting some depth on it. And that will be a powerful lens for you. And on that note, is there a particular species that has a close place to your heart? Well, right now I'm working on a what I call the blue beast of death, which is the biggest dung beetle in the Amazon, but it doesn't actually eat dung. It buries dead bodies. Uh, and it's interesting to me because most things, if they're large and colorful and they have a great big uh, set of weapons, you think they're automatically a male that fights with other males for access to females or whatever. But in this case, it's the females that are just as big that have giant big horns and that beat the crap out of each other. And so I'm looking at how the battle for the control of a resource will drive females to end up looking like males in terms of size and weaponry and propensity to fight. And I'm just interested in how the ecology of resources drives behavior. 
And so in this case, if you walk around the rainforest, you'll never find the corpse of a vertebrate. Rarely, I see one every few years because they're so valuable in terms of nutrients that get scavenged immediately by things like this beetle. So these females, if they find a dead body to bury to feed their offspring, they may only have that chance once in their life. And if they don't control it and use it, their life is over in evolutionary terms. So they're willing to battle to the death for that. And they've evolved the weapons and the size and the power to do that. And so I'm looking at this thing. It's it's hard to study. It's like studying it at Jaguar. It's just not an easy thing to study. It's not common. It's active at a bad time of day and bad time of year or whatever. But it's just fascinating because it's one of these things at the extremity of, of life where you think, wow, why is this thing so big and strong and rare and brutal? And it's a way of seeing how ecology drives behavior uh, and how you look and what you do. You know, uh, Dr. Forsythe, I think some people might chuckle at the fact that you just compared studying a dung beetle to studying a jaguar. <laughs> <laughs> They're pretty much at the top of their, their own food chain. These things are a little easier to study than jaguars, and, and frankly, they're to me, quite a bit more interesting. All right. Well, we are getting close on our time. But before I let you go, I would love it if you could tell me about your most exciting or perhaps most surprising memory from being in the field. You know, I think the most amazing things are the things that you're not looking for. The very first giant anaconda I saw was completely not thinking about anacondas and just drifting down the river at midday, hot, 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 most people in the in the canoe sleeping. And the boat came up against this log with this ginormous anaconda, totally unexpected, and all of a sudden we were right beside this thing. If I had been expecting it, it wouldn't have been the same as to stumble across this huge predator unexpectedly. That's when you get that real adrenaline rush that imprints an experience in your memory. Wow. I don't even want to imagine drifting down a river and waking up to a giant anaconda right next to my face. That sounds terrifying, Dr. Forsythe. I have one last question for you before we wrap up. Will you please tell me what are you most proud of? You know, I think I'm most proud of for the past 20 years, either working for a foundation or working in one of these nonprofits that we've been talking about, is we've been able to collectively add hundreds of millions of acres to formal protection in the Amazon, either as national parks, indigenous reserves, eco-tourism uh, concessions, whatever it takes to keep habitat intact. The Amazon is radically different you know, now than it was 20 years ago, it actually has a lot of protection that didn't exist. And it was kind of like digging into that as a, a lifetime goal. And to do that, I had to convince Gordon Moore and his foundation to invest more than half a billion dollars in doing that. And to me, that like that set the Amazon on a, a path to viability that otherwise wouldn't have happened. So I'm pretty happy about that. And I can't claim, you know, responsibility for that because it takes thousands of people working towards that goal. But I do take responsibility for convincing Gordon Moore that that was a good thing to do with his money. It was a huge step. Yeah. yeah. 
Fabulous. Thank you again so much, Dr. Forsyth, for, for all of your time. For anybody listening to this podcast, where can they find you? It's a good way to reach you. I know you're active on social media. Uh, you know, I actually read email from people who want to email me. So if you just write my name, Adrian Forsyth at Gmail, you'll get me. And if it isn't stupid or an insult, I'll probably write you back. All right. No insults. Kind emails only, people. <laughs> awesome. Thank you again so much for your time. Is there anything you feel like I missed that you want to talk about before we sign off? Uh, great to talk to you, Lucy. Thanks again. And to everybody listening, that was Dr. Adrian Forsythe, renowned ecologist, biologist, conservationist, and naturalist. He is the co-author of Tropical Nature, along with a number of other publications. If you still have questions, which I'm sure you do, you can reach out to him via email. Dr. Forsythe is also very active on Instagram. His handle is at adrian.forsythe, and his feed is crawling with macro photos of insects and insightful educational captions. So check him out. While you're there, you can check out Ozo Conservation on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for conservation news straight from the field. Our handle is at Osa Conservation. That's at O-S-A Conservation. Once again, my name is Lucy Kleiner, and this is The Nature Dilemma, brought to you by Osa Conservation. Thank you so much for listening.